The work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. Ted Kennedy's famous words from the 1980 Democratic Convention. What's happened to the party ever since then? Is his vision still alive? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. When you think of the word liberal, what's your first reaction? Politically irrelevant? A long ago, now thoroughly washed up bit of American history, something we should have left by the side of the road about 50 years ago. Well, we're going to talk about liberalism today. Our guest, David Messiotra, writes in a new essay in the Washington Monthly, considering the efficacy and future of the democratic liberalism that Ted Kennedy so effectively represented and advanced. The uh, article in uh, the Washington Monthly is titled, Ted Kennedy's Lonely Liberalism. He writes, quote, already having suffered decades of reputational damage after Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan battered the word into oblivion, it's now rare to ever hear it with a positive connotation. Well, we're going to look at how did liberalism get its current bad reputation? How did the right wing so successfully degrade its meaning? Does my gut feeling that it's making a comeback really have any validity? David Masiotra is the author of several books, and he's our guest today, including I Am Somebody, Why Jesse Jackson Matters, and a forthcoming examination of the politics of exurbia and suburbia. He has also written for The New Republic, The Progressive, and many other publications. Well, thanks so much for being with us, David. Oh, thank you very much. I'm happy to join you. Ted Kennedy was called the liberal lion of the Senate, who served from 1962 until his death in 2009. When asked about liberalism as the term started to be under attack, Kennedy's more famous brother, JFK, put it this way back in 1960 or so, if by a liberal they mean someone who looks ahead and not behind, someone who welcomes new ideas without rigid reactions, someone who cares about the welfare of the people, their health, their housing, their schools, their jobs, their civil rights, and their civil liberties, someone who believes we can break through the stalemate and suspicions that grip us in our policies abroad, if that is what they mean by a liberal, then I'm proud to say... I'm a liberal. Uh, so here we are, well into the 21st century. And as our guest, uh, David Messiota writes, the right wing continues to equate it, liberalism, with moral decadence and fiscal recklessness. And I have a feeling a lot of people do get that sense when they think of the word liberal. The demographic which had been the solid core of the Democratic Party, working class people across the country, have been subject to the right's relentless culture war now. And it's uh, changed a lot of attitudes. The Trumpists have effectively owned the term liberal, making it us against them. Traditional cultural conservatives versus gender-bending globalists who threaten our good old way of life. Your essay notes that this point of view 
requires obliviousness to the achievements of democratic liberalism. Well, let's start there. What are some of those achievements of democratic liberalism that we may have forgotten about? Great question and a great place to start. Um, first of all, you know, it might be helpful, even I'm sure most of the listeners are aware that, uh, you know, a, a liberal is left of center, uh, but typically, uh, while the John Kennedy description is uh, perfectly applicable, uh, but typically also not as far as uh, a leftist, a socialist, right. certainly not a communist. And one of the ways that the right wing has succeeded is by equating liberalism uh, with those other forms of uh, political ideology. Yes. But if we begin to examine uh, the New Deal era and we advance forward into the present, uh, we can keep constant track of two of the key accomplishments of liberalism in the improvement of uh, the general societal welfare. So we have uh, humane and sensible regulation of the free market economy mm. to provide a social safety net uh, for the poor, uh, the disabled, and the elderly. Uh, everything from Social Security and Medicare to Medicaid. And even if it had its origins as a somewhat conservative proposal uh, for health care reform, uh, the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, right. um, all of these projects fit into the general framework of liberalism because they demand an interventionist government uh, to provide for the general safety, health, and welfare of the people and to ensure some equal playing field of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Now, simultaneously, uh, what's particularly revolutionary in American society, even if at this point it is an incomplete revolution, is uh, the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the LGBTQ rights movement, immigrant rights movement, and disabled rights movement. Uh, all of these movements allowed for the entrance of previously excluded, oppressed, and degraded groups of Americans mm. uh, into the decision-making institutions of our society into the cultural institutions, educational institutions, and uh, higher levels in the professions. Uh, now, as I say, I don't want anyone to confuse me for a uh, utopian thinker here. As I say, these, these revolutions are incomplete, and on the economic side of it, it there's even uh, more work to do. Uh, because our social safety net is comparably weak to Canada and Western Europe. Uh, but, but those provide a good primer on the achievements of liberalism and how they've steadily and gradually improved people's lives and improved our country as a whole. And it's in our best interest. It's in the national interest to to uh, have some sort of safety net because if you know if it falls apart, yeah, that's not good for for stability. And as you were talking, it was occurring to me something I, I hadn't really thought of before. Why the uh, right wing is so down on it is because it includes more people, and they are mm -hmm. so actively trying to exclude people. They they you know they they. Uh, 
you know, it, it's it's not as uh, blatant as the uh, uh, laws that there used to be in the South, uh, the Jim Crow laws, uh, but they want to discourage uh, people participating in self-government. They, they really do. And liberalism uh, opens that up. Interesting. Yeah, that's that's correct. And if I can just add something Please. quickly to that. Yeah. Uh, if if the greater the turnout, typically the likelier that the more progressive candidate wins in the race. And yes. typically that means a Democrat defeats a Republican. And uh, all of these voter suppression laws in various states and all of the gerrymandering schemes of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. And I would also add this new wave of uh, book banning and censorship yeah. and educational interference in states like Florida and Texas that is all to either uh, exclude people from the political system or dissuade them from participating mm -hmm. in the system. Because the more black voters, the more Latino voters, the more young women voters, uh, and the more young voters in general yes. who show up at the ballot box, uh, the likelier it is that the, uh, the Republican Party, which depends upon uh, aging white Christian electorate, mm -hmm. which is fading out, mm -hmm. uh, will suffer defeat. Yeah. And they say, uh, you will not replace us. Mm -hmm. we, know right. <laughs> we know what that means. And you use the term progressive. And that's one thing I have found it curious uh, in the past, oh, 20 years or so, that a lot of my Democratic friends uh, don't want to use the word liberal. They'd rather use the word progressive. Is there a real difference? I, I don't really understand it. Yeah, I, I don't identify a strong difference uh, between the two. I think they're mostly interchangeable. Yeah. But uh, as you suggested in your opening, and you were kind enough to quote some of my article, uh, Nixon and Reagan and then Gingrich and Trump, and then not to mention all the, the right-wing media uh, propagandists and fools and uh, ghouls like Rush Limbaugh so thoroughly debased the term liberal and the term liberalism yes. that now even people who should proudly identify as liberal, as John Kennedy did, mm -hmm. uh, run away from it. And uh, that's un that's unfortunate because it's a very important part of the political tradition in this country and others. Yep, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the, the right wing may try to call equate liberalism with socialism, but it's it's an important and, very, you know, it's it's not anti-capitalist per se. It wants some regulation and the economy to serve the common good, as FDR very much wanted to. And it does seem like ever since the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt and his successful New Deal, which not just helped people, but saved our economic and democratic system. The Republican Party has had, as its raison d'etre, destroying all his accomplishments ever since then. Is this the liberalism for which Ted Kennedy fought and is now known? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ted Kennedy, as you said, is the liberal lion of the Senate. And uh, he not only embraced the vocabulary of liberalism, but aggressively advanced an agenda of liberalism. So uh, beginning with civil rights legislation, which he championed in voting rights and the uh, demolition of some of the racial quotas, uh, keeping immigrants from non-white countries out of the country. Uh, those were some of his earliest moves in the Senate. 
and he consistently uh, was rhetorically aggressive and politically savvy in advancing an agenda of social, economic, and political liberalism, uh, and that goes well into his career. So uh, perhaps the most significant civil rights legislation uh, in the country's history, if we measure it by the sheer amount of people it affected, Mm. is the Americans with Disabilities Act. And that was a signature Ted Kennedy piece of legislation passed in the early 90s. Mm. Um, And then, of course, uh, the Affordable Care Act, which which did make a significant improvement over our health care system, it, although it, of course, has many problems and flaws. Yeah. Uh, you know, Barack Obama cited the the memory and legacy of Ted Kennedy, who at the time was, you know, recently deceased right. uh, to make a moral argument for its passage. So Ted Kennedy offers us. Uh, a glimpse, an argument, and even something of a 20th century history of uh, political liberalism in the United States. And it's done so much good. It really has, and people are not aware of that. And I tend to think, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, that there was a specific point at which the term liberalism and liberal uh, got, uh, got hurt really badly and went down, and that was in the Dukakis campaign of 1988, those mm. Willie Horton ads where uh, this black guy was shown uh, at a uh, turnstile, I think it was, getting out of jail and doing some some bad things. And somehow that liberalism equaled Dukakis, Willie Horton, letting people out of jail and, and uh, you know endangering society, I guess. What are your thoughts on, was that a pivotal moment, do you think? Definitely. I think so. I mean, one of the key moments uh, is is definitely that campaign and a a certain uh, execution of of ugly campaign tactics, slandering uh, liberals and liberalism. But, you know, that's all in keeping with kind of the right wing uh, mass hallucination of society. Uh, Richard Hofstadter wrote probably the, the, the crucial book of, for understanding it, The Paranoid Style in American Politics. And it, it, Hofstadter explains that it's this idea that there's a communist or a terrorist or, you know, fill in the blank with whatever scares you, you know, hiding under every bed and hiding in every shadow. And, uh, you know, they might be in your house right now if you listen to yeah. Tucker Carlson, so you better grab your gun. Uh and liberalism, as you say, became equated with all of that. So there was this idea that the liberals were either savvy, cons- diabolical conspirators mm. looking to undermine our society with runaway crime and the destruction of morality and uh, the destruction of the free market and personal responsibility, or they were useful idiots in service of some a globalist agenda. And uh, of course, now we live in an era where the right wing has become even more conspiratorial in its thinking. And ideas that were once the sole province of neo-Nazis, yes. such as the Great Replacement Theory, yes. are now mainstream Republican argument. If you watch Fox News, if you listen to elected Congress people, uh, 
you know, so and elected senators even like J.D. Vance in Ohio has been quite brazen in saying uh, there is a conspiracy to use voters of color to replace and dilute the franchisement of white patriots. I mean, it's the kind of insanity that uh, if it wasn't so dangerous, you know, we could sit back and laugh at it like it's some absurd movie. But it's very important, back to the subject, Ted Kennedy, to have people who can exercise the kind of aggression that he displayed, uh, because this is the right wing ideology is not one with which you can often compromise. It's eliminationist. And Ted Kennedy uh, demonstrated an understanding of that in the way that he comported himself to the public. And I think that's so true. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about liberalism. We're talking about Ted Kennedy's lonely liberalism, an article that our guest David Masiotra wrote in Washington Monthly. It frustrates me that as a Democrat, if people don't know what we stand for, if they know what the Republicans stand for, but they don't know what the Democrats stand for, if Democrats are so afraid to say anything and to have any kind of courage, it's it's much more difficult to actually win, I do believe. And we, we have to, and Ted Kennedy, you knew where he stood. There's no question. Mm-hmm. He was he was a powerhouse, absolutely a powerhouse. And and we're talking about, does that continue now? What, what happens to that, that energy now? And here we are in 2023. It's a unique period of American political history. Kind of scary, quite frankly. What's the significance of the moment that there are two new biographies of the liberal lion appearing on the bookshelves. It's, what's the unique context for that now? There's the two new biographies which you discuss in your article about uh, Ted Kennedy. And uh, what, what about the fact that it's coming out now? Well, it's, it's an ideal time to revisit the, the career of Ted Kennedy. And these two biographies uh, make for ideal reading because uh, liberal... It, we're at an interesting uh, crossroads with liberalism. Uh, in some ways, liberalism is becoming increasingly uh, influential, even if people don't use the term. If you look at the values of young voters, and by young, I mean under 40. Mm-hmm. I don't mean just college students. Uh, they are aggressively supportive of women's rights, of gay and trans rights, of uh, voters' rights. They want a more humane immigration policy. They want more gun control, and they want more uh, direct measures to mitigate the effects of climate change. Yes. So uh, we are actually on the precipice if uh, a few elections go the right way and uh, luck is in our favor of a liberal age in the United States because – Uh, As David Ferris, an excellent political scientist, argues in his book, The Kids Are All Left, uh, explains uh, these these voters are unlikely to change. And the Republican Party right now is doing everything it can to alienate them with these racist clowns that they're running Uh and celebrating the reversal of Roe versus Wade. But at the same time, to answer your question, Liberalism is under a degree of unprecedented attack. Uh, The Republican Party is now hostile to the very idea of democracy. 
Uh, January 6th demonstrated that in ways that were quite frightening and violent and painful. And now most of the Republican Party uh, won't even offer a full-throated condemnation of the insurrection of January 6th. Uh, You have governors like DeSantis and Abbott in Texas who, as I stated earlier, they're banning books. They're interfering with academic freedom. uh, They're interfering with voting rights. So while we're at this, you know, interesting inflection or crossroads Mm -hmm. where we might go one way, that liberalism will become a dominant ideology, even if people don't use the term, nah. because of the preferences of younger voters and most voters of color. Or we could go the other way if the right wing succeeds uh, and witness the steady demolition of liberal institutions and democratic norms. So to return to a sterling figure like Ted Kennedy, who dedicated his life mistakes and flaws and all to the advancement of liberalism is a real educational moment for us right now. And it is interesting. People have a need for leaders. And I think a lot of people, young people in particular, and I agree, 40 and under, uh, they they don't see many real liberal leaders. Here's one who's unquestionably a liberal leader, the liberal lion of the Senate, Ted Kennedy, which I don't think a lot of uh, young people really know about. But here's a moment where there's these two new books. And the first one that you focus on in your Washington Monthly article is Ted Kennedy, A Life by John A. Farrell. Who is he? And what? And there's two books. They're rather different. <laughs> Who is he hmm. and what does his book bring to the portrait of Senator Ted Kennedy? Uh, Farrell is an esteemed uh, biographer and journalist, and he has previously written books on uh, Richard Nixon and Tip O'Neill. He's he's among the best of the best of of journalists. And in his portrait of Ted Kennedy, uh, he he strips it down to a minimalist technique. If anyone has ever read Ernest Hemingway novels and I've, I've read them all He's, you know, he was a genius of American literature. Uh, Farrell almost writes with a Hemingway esque minimalism. Mm. Uh, however, he unearths these primary sources, uh, parts of Ted Kennedy's diary, uh, letters that Ted Kennedy exchanged with friends and family and colleagues, uh, that were never published. So he's able to offer us uh, something of a fresh look at uh, Senator Ted Kennedy, and he's able to offer us uh, something of a more intimate look because we're reading lines from his diary. We're reading lines from letters he wrote. Oh. And, and it's not only a political uh, education, but it's, a, it's something of a personal or psycholo- psychological one as well. Yeah, he. I, 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 you can probably tell by now. I was always impressed with Ted Kennedy. He was my favorite of the Kennedy brothers. I'll, I'll admit. And you write that Farrell. This is interesting. In, in the research that he did, uh, John Farrell, uh, in his book Ted Kennedy: Life, manages to surprise the reader with new revelations. As you describe it, he reveals from his unique access to those papers that quote the Kennedy inner circle worried about the potential for violence and authoritarianism in right-wing politics. Whoa! And I wonder about this uh, amazing prescience that Ted Kennedy apparently had. I mean, that was way ahead of the time. 
Yeah, that was one of the most fascinating parts of Farrell's book in that he he publishes lines uh, from uh, Kennedy's letters and also uh, Arthur Schlesinger's uh, papers, who uh, he was a friend and associate of the Kennedys, and he also then became a historian, and he writes about some conversations that uh, he had with the Kennedys. And uh, what you see is that all of the Kennedy brothers uh, had an understanding that the, that there was something elemental and fundamental to the American right that was hostile to the nature of and the proposition of a multiracial democracy. And given that uh, we're not going to deport everyone who's non-white, the, the Kennedys uh, were able to predict, even though they did so privately, that we could reach a point where uh, if, if the rights and the, the influence of black, Latino, Native American, and Asian voters increase, uh, the American right will turn against democracy itself. Uh, and even Jackie, Jackie Kennedy, later Jackie Onassis, you know, she said quite famously when uh, they were headed into Dallas, where President Kennedy was assassinated, uh, we're headed into nut country. No. Uh, so there was this understanding in the inner circle that the right wing was growing increasingly hostile, increasingly extreme, and that that hostility and extremity could transform into violence. And then that only grew uh, when, for Ted Kennedy, uh, when his brothers were assassinated, mm. uh, you know, the uh, the named assassin of uh, John Kennedy was Lee Harvey Oswald, who the claim was he was a man of the left. Uh, but without going too far, you know, into the right. corridors of the Kennedy uh, assassination, uh, Ted Kennedy and Robert Kennedy were always skeptical oh, yeah. that that Oswald acted alone or that Oswald acted at all. So uh, they really had a deep sense of fear for the future of the country and the country's democracy. And violence, you know, it's it's so many countries around the world. There There is violence and it's just sort of the way it's done. And to see that here, I mean, the... Uh, November 22nd, 1963, that was a political violence. There's no question about it. And uh, to see that uh, ahead of time, I, I must admit, I was kind of, I never would have thought there'd be the political violence. I mean, I remember when we thought that Barry Goldwater was right wing. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, comparatively, he'd be a centrist these days. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to, to be really against democracy and to be so clear that they're against democracy and to be able to manipulate and use fear, fear, as you know, is one of the most powerful things, most powerful tools in, in uh, politics, no matter where. And, and to fear the, the liberals, you know, they're going to change your world. They're going to replace you, as it were. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a key point. I hope you don't mind me cutting please, in. I'm sorry yes, if no. I walked over your uh, – the United States military defines terrorism – as the use or threat of violence to achieve a political objective. Mm. Uh, so, so these rising hate crimes and the hundreds, if not thousands 
of death threats against school board members and librarians and election workers and the plot to try to assassinate Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, all of that qualifies as terrorism, political violence. And you threw a bullseye that the Republican Party is able to excuse this violence Mm. on the premise that it's defensive, that if we let the liberals succeed, they're going to destroy the United States of America. They're going to uh, disenfranchise you. They're going to take away your religion, take away your rights. And therefore, we can't let them do that. And it becomes an ends justifies the means situation which is potentially explosive, as we saw on January 6th, and I hope not, but we might see again. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's other situations, too. The uh, beating up of uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband, it seems like. Oh, yeah. Part of the same damn thing. You reviewed two books uh, for your article in uh, the Washington Monthly. The next book reviewed, after the Farrell book, uh, is actually, it's impressive as all heck, a two-volume biography weighing in at over 2,000 pages and you read all that that's yeah <laughs> good for you by good i'm impressed both are both these books combined to make 2000 pages neil gabler i believe it is volume one is titled catching the wind edward kennedy and the liberal hour 1932 through 75 the second part of that is against the wind Te- uh, edward kennedy and the rise of conservatism 1976 through 2009 I feel like I've heard of this author, but not for any serious political analytical book. Who is this Neil Gabler? Yeah, he. it's interesting. This is a departure for him. Uh, uh-huh. He's a biographer and I believe a, a credentialed historian. Uh, but his previous books are about Walt Disney, uh, Barbara Streisand. He wrote a book on how the early decades of Hollywood filmmaking, uh, influenced American culture. So uh, he's a thoughtful writer, but uh, his bibliography is full of many more books on entertainment and the arts Uh than uh, straightforward political history. Interesting. Well, I come from a family of, of proud Massachusetts liberals, and in 1968, I and the rest of my family were for Gene McCarthy over Ted Kennedy's brother, Bobby Kennedy, who I saw as a blatant opportunist. I mean, he worked with Joe McCarthy, etc. But you note that Gabler asserts that Ted Kennedy was the only authentic liberal in the Kennedy family. What do you, th- what do you think about that? Was he right on that? Uh, that's a statement on uh, with which I take umbrage and disagree in my review. Uh-huh. Uh, and and I think some of this, there's a bit of a Kennedy backlash that has occurred in recent years. And much of it, I would argue, is, is uninformed and overblown. Uh, mm-hmm. President John Kennedy, although he had some tendencies that people might now identify as conservative, he believed in prosecuting the Cold War, he yes. cut taxes. But an important note to add on the tax cut when he cut taxes, the top marginal tax rate was something like 90 percent. Right. So it's quite different than Trump cutting taxes. Uh, but John Kennedy, you know, he also uh, had the largest expansive uh, era of government programs uh, after the New Deal and before the Great Society, the New Frontier. 
uh-huh. where he uh, raised the minimum wage and championed all kinds of educational aid programs, mental health programs. Uh, He essentially created the Office of Civil Rights with the Department of Justice. And of course, he gave a uh, a pretty powerful Oval Office address calling on uh, civil rights legislation before his assassination. Uh, So, you know, I think that the the liberal label certainly applies to John Kennedy, Uh And then Robert Kennedy, you're, you're entirely right. And I guess, you know, you and I, it would be a disagreement that would be impossible to solve because I'm more of the school and perhaps it's the romantic in me, but that Robert Kennedy, particularly after the death of his brother, uh, migrated to the left and became a sincere advocate for anti-poverty programs and anti-war policies and uh, civil rights for black Americans and others. Uh, But yeah, he did come from, I mean, he was definitely to the right of his brother, John, uh, when he worked with McCarthy and even when he was uh, in the white house. Uh, But I, I mean, I tend to view those convictions that he expressed later in his life and during his presidential campaign as sincere. Yeah. Uh, But that's, you know, it's impossible for me to say for certain. Well, people do change it. And, you know, it's a good politician who can look at things and say, hey, you know what? Maybe I should learn from this and do things a little bit differently. And he's, I mean, Bobby Kennedy was certainly against the war and certainly pro-civil rights. No question about that. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about Ted Kennedy's Lonely Liberalism, an article written in the Washington Monthly by our guest David Masiotra. And uh, talking about Ted Kennedy and uh, a liberal lion in in this world in the uh, 2020s. Uh, It's it's great to see that and to to have somebody who stood up for that Uh, and all three brothers really, really did that. It's true. And one thing I find fascinating is that the Republican Party these days, you know, worships wealth. I mean, billionaires, billionaires who <laughs> I, I, I don't under. I mean, capitalism is one thing, but greed is something else entirely. And to, you know, these, these people that they support, the Kennedys were not poor. They had some decent wealth. And I, I, I can't imagine what today's Republican Party would think. You know, are they uh, uh, enemies of their class? You know, like like uh, FDR was accused of being, uh, you know, traitors to his class, that they had money. But they, and I don't think, I don't think it was just because they were nice people and they wanted to give stuff away. It's in the interest of American security, uh, I, I think, and and. Uh, something about the the Kennedys that recognize that it's good for uh, security. I mean, it's like you can't have uh, an economy without roads. If the roads have big potholes, uh, you can't get much business done. And if people don't have educations and don't have skills, it's not good for the economy. Now, I, I, I've been in politics for a little while, and I was in the, I remember the 1976 presidential primary at an event for Jimmy Carter, which in which the candidate, Jimmy Carter, struck me as, quite frankly, mouthing exceedingly general platitudes. Ted Kennedy took him on in 1980, 
And I was a supporter of that insurgency, the Ted Kennedy uh, thing that went into the 1980 Democratic Convention. You say, back to our the review of these books, that Gabler describes Carter as a, quote, horrific villain hell-bent on the dismantlement of liberalism. Now, it's commonly held now that Carter was a much better ex-president than president. But what's your reaction to, to Gabler's description of, of Jimmy Carter? Well, I should say, first of all, that I'm uh, uh, characterizing the way that, that Gabler uh, describes him. But I uh -huh. think it's a fair characterization, but those aren't verbatim right. quotes. Okay. So, you know, it's interesting. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty, And uh, I could certainly understand uh, the the disenchantment of voters like you and others with uh, President Carter. Uh, however, if you if you look back on it, Kennedy's primary challenge to Carter uh, was pretty destructive uh, to the Republican Party and to the chance of a reelection of a Democrat uh, in that race. And yeah. that, of course, helped uh, Reagan yes. uh, take power. And Reagan was one of the most uh, significant presidents uh, in the 20th century. I mean, the Reagan revolution oh, really know. moved the country Ugh. disastrously to yes. the right. Oh, uh, you know, Carter it, as a president, it, he's interesting to analyze because in some ways he was uh, much more conservative than the average Democrat. Uh, in other ways, he was prescient. Uh, his, his uh, advocacy of solar power mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. his advocacy of uh, more ecological sustainability as part of our way of life and environmental policy. Uh, as an administrator and practitioner of foreign policy, he had some wonderful achievements, yes. you know, negotiating the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. And uh, he did eventually uh, come forward with a comprehensive health care plan. Uh, that most historians and uh, Democratic Party activists now concede uh, was better than uh, Obamacare, that mm -hmm. went further than Obamacare. Uh, but Ted Kennedy at the time uh, thought he should have went further and we could have gotten something that more closely resembled Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. And that was one of his chief disagreements with Carter. Uh, so I would argue that in hindsight, Kennedy's primary campaign, despite the amazing inspirational speech he gave at the convention, right. uh, has aged poorly. But given some of the the conflicts of the time, uh, it, it makes more sense if you can you know, transport yourself uh, back to that period. Also, it's to Jimmy Carter's foreign policy with regard to Central America was to actually respect their choice mm. and allow them to do what they wanted to do and not treat it as our backyard. Ted Kennedy, of course. Yes, had, great point. Ted Kennedy had his oh personal issues as well, as we all know. I mean, his place in history, if you think about Ted Kennedy at all, you think about Chappaquiddick and that. I, I don't know if that's really mentioned in the book. And uh, when he was running for president uh, in the primary in 1980, uh, I'll never forget Roger Mudd was interviewing him on CBS, I believe it was, uh, asked the incredible softball, why are you running for president? And he blew it. He couldn't answer that. And, and, and what about some of his uh, 
you know, personal foibles, I suppose it was, and, and, and how that might affect where we see Ted Kennedy as we move throughout the rest of the 21st century. Oh, yeah. Well, going in reverse order, uh, sure. when, when he did that interview with Mudd, and he didn't quite know how to answer the question, what, why would do you want to be president? Uh, many people believe, many people in Kennedy's inner circle believe that he didn't really have a desire to become president wow. uh, like his brothers did. That he, he loved being a senator and he felt that he had mastered the Senate uh, and wow. he didn't have a strong desire to leave, but he was doing it out of a sense of duty, uh, yeah. a duty for his family legacy and more apropos to our conversation, a, a sense of duty for liberalism, uh -huh. because he did view Carter as too far to the right, too close to the center uh, for comfort within the Democratic Party. And he thought that the Democratic Party and more importantly, the United States of America uh, needed an unapologetic liberal uh, on the ballot. And because of his popularity and because of his name recognition and his charisma, mm. uh, he was the man for the job. But his heart wasn't really in it. Interesting. Now, on the point of Chappaquiddick, both biographies delve pretty deeply into it. Yeah. And <laughs> right. And neither biographer uh, absolves or exonerates him. The both both biographers. Uh, address that he behaved irresponsibly and that he behaved poorly. Uh, but neither believes that he ever intended uh, for that woman to die. Right. Uh, Mary Jo, he right. never, in, he never intended even to uh, conceal her death that he was, he was in somewhat of a state of panic and uh, a, a daze and he just behaved recklessly and irresponsibly. And one of the interesting things I learned uh, in both biographies, although Gabler spends more time on it than Farrell, is that uh, Mary Jo, I can't remember how to pronounce Kopechny. her last name. Kopechny, yeah. yes. Uh, her family remained very close with Ted Kennedy. Oh, true. And uh, they endorsed his run for president in the 19, in 1980. Uh, and uh, they never held him responsible. They always viewed it as a tragic accident, and they accepted his apology and forgave him. And that, to me, reading it, uh, that had great persuasive force, that uh, even though Kennedy, yes, he behaved irresponsibly, he behaved recklessly and foolishly, uh, there wasn't any malice, and there certainly wasn't any criminal intention. Interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I remember that so well and how imagining how difficult that, that must have been. Uh, so the party goes on, the Democratic Party, I should say, eventually Bill Clinton becomes president. And I wonder, you cite uh, Gabler for crediting Bill Clinton's reelection in 1996 to his alleged following of the Ted Kennedy playbook. I, that surprised me a little bit to, to read that because I mean the Republican Party it was Bob Dole's turn and and they sort of gave you know I think he was sort of a sacrificial lamb in 1996. What about uh, did Bill Clinton follow the Ted Kennedy playbook in in 1996 and if so how? I found that incoherent uh, hmm. because 
uh, you know, Clinton won re-election for several reasons. I mean, we were we were in uh, good economic times. Mm. Uh, Clinton, whether one loves him or loathes him, uh, is a you know magnetically charismatic oh, yeah. leader and a, you know quite an orator. So you know there were many reasons that Clinton won re-election, and uh, following the Ted Kennedy playbook uh, wouldn't rank you know, near the top. Mm. And I, and I found Gabler's argument, uh, quite a stretch, especially considering that, uh, the main policy that Clinton, uh, executed that came from Ted Kennedy didn't occur until Clinton's second term. And I'm speaking of mm. S chip, the state children's health insurance program, mm. uh, which to your first question, the improvements liberalism has made in our society, uh, to this day, millions of children and pregnant women acquire their uh, medical care through the state children's health insurance program. And this was something that Ted Kennedy and uh, Hillary Clinton uh, put to- worked on together behind the scenes. Mm. And then Ted Kennedy got uh, Senator Orrin Hatch, All a right. pretty conservative Republican from Utah, yeah. uh, to co-sponsor the bill. And uh, it's done a world of good for people. And it's also a reminder of when bipartisanship for the general welfare was possible. What a concept. Uh, (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That just blows one's mind. You know, maybe we can put aside our differences to get sick children the medicine that they need. Uh, But, you know, Kennedy. He was able to do it. Yeah. And one thing he did uh, during the Clinton years was uh, use his savvy and tenacity Mm. as a Senate negotiator and as a public figure making arguments in the spotlight uh, to beat back against uh, the Republican Congress. Because while Clinton was president, we had that entire, you know, Gingrich uh, conquest of the house and uh, Republicans controlled the Senate for much of Clinton's presidency. So Ted Kennedy was the most forceful and effective Democrat uh, in either chamber of Congress uh, doing his best to preserve uh, a liberal agenda and to counterpunch against uh, the rightward drift of the country. And young people these days, you know, I tell you, they, I, I think there's a hunger for something and somebody to believe in. And here's, here's Ted Kennedy, who the more you read about him, the more you realize he was able to uh, work the Senate, both sides of the aisle. I mean, working with Aaron Hatch. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, I mean, t- t- here's somebody, dare I say, to look up to. You know, and people say mm. that both parties are the same. <sighs> Nuts. I mean, this guy, he's the real thing. Ted Kennedy was the real thing and there's it wasn't yeah. it wasn't just him i thought this was interesting among the most pointed criticism of gabbler's book is his failure to give due credit to the jesse jackson campaigns of 1984 and 88 for keeping liberalism alive say a little bit about that please oh i'd love to and as you were kind enough to mention earlier uh for your listeners interested in this topic i've I spent six years interviewing uh, Jesse Jackson and wrote a book, I Am Somebody, Why Jesse Jackson Matters. Mm. And uh, Mm -hmm. to this day, uh, people are still learning of the significance of his presidential campaigns. He ushered 
uh, millions of new voters into the Democratic Party, predominantly black, uh, Latino, Native American, and Asian voters, but also uh, students of all races. And uh, interesting connection here. So Ted Kennedy, when he ran for president in that primary campaign that you just mentioned, was the first candidate for president to uh, announce support for gay rights. Uh, But Kennedy did it in one speech and uh, uh, only mentioned it sparingly. Uh. Whereas Jackson was the first candidate to make it a critical part of his campaign, Mm -hmm. you know, actively uh, campaigning with, you know, openly gay uh, activists and officials. And at the height of the HIV AIDS crisis, he uh, slept overnight in hospices with people dying of AIDS. Uh, And Jackson also, you know, that that speaks to our social diversity and how he challenged the Democratic Party to represent the full polity of the American experience. Mm. But he also took positions that at the time were cast as radical, but now are becoming increasingly mainstream within the Democratic Party. So a publicly subsidized universal health care program, uh, tuition free community college. Uh, paid family medical leave, this robust social welfare agenda that really represents the best of liberalism, uh, but also, uh, as I said, was seen as radical in the 80s, but now with figures like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the squad and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and, uh, you know, even in some respects, Joe Biden, In his State of the Union, he called for free community college uh, is becoming part and parcel of the Democratic Party agenda. And you're right that Gabler, you know, he he he's right to praise Ted Kennedy and he does it with great passion and panache. But his focus sometimes is just a little too narrow. So, you know, he writes that Kennedy alone in the 80s kept liberalism Uh. alive. Well, you know, these campaigns of Jackson's were critical in that effort, and they were just one piece of it. They were strong. Here in New Hampshire, the Jackson campaign was strong. And I remember you reminded me political buttons for Jesse Jackson that had a rainbow on it. Nobody else had that. Mm -hmm. You know, Jesse Jackson had that. He was quite and had some terrific people on his campaign, I, I, I must say. What about... And and memory is so important, you know, how we, I, I think the, the right wing likes to erase memory, for sure. They don't want us to learn about the civil rights struggle and systemic racism. They want to pretend it's not there. Talk about, I mean, Ted Kennedy, as, as you say, there's a staggering amount of legislation that bore Ted Kennedy's fingerprints. And it's made a tremendous difference on a lot of people. Talk about the effects of not having such things in our collective memory. What about that? If we don't we forget that stuff, it, we're, we're programmed to forget that stuff. Yeah, that's key because, uh, and I'll relate this back to young voters. I also, I teach uh, courses at the college level uh-huh. at, at Indiana University Northwest. And uh, most of my students, uh, like I said, even if they wouldn't use the term proudly express liberal values, but because we don't teach history and because we have steadily erased the, the memory and the public consciousness 
uh, of how change happens, uh, they take much for granted. You know, they take it for granted that, for example, right now, the four most populous cities in the United States have black mayors. They take it for granted, you know, referring Mm -hmm. to the Americans with Disabilities Act earlier. They take it for granted that every building they walk into is handicap accessible. Uh, They take it for granted that women are, uh, in some respects and according to some indicators, doing better than men in terms of leadership in the professions and elsewhere. Uh, But all of and they take it for granted, of course, that our society has uh, accepted and is continuing to move toward greater acceptance of LGBTQ Americans. Uh, But all of those victories were made possible uh, by the blood and sweat and labor Mm. of millions of activists. And then also, to your earlier point, uh, the brilliant and courageous leadership of figures like Ted Kennedy and Jesse Jackson, who were able to marshal their talents and their intelligence and their charisma uh, to advance the public interest in the common good. And without those movements on the ground and without those leaders uh, in the in, in the Congress or the White House or the mayor's office or the governor's mm-hmm. office, uh, we don't have these stunning transformations in our society. And we don't have young people who don't know what it's like to live in a country that just routinely expresses sexism and homophobia and racism and routinely excludes people from uh, the college classroom or the boardroom or the uh, the city hall. Uh, so that's why, uh, even though I have some criticisms of Gabler's book, uh, that's why what Farrell and Gabler have done and other great historians and journalists uh, and educators and hosts like yourself, uh, that's why it's all so important because it it preserves and protects memory. And if we can't reflect upon what made past change possible, we're not going to stand much of a chance of making future change possible. And for the powers that be to have convinced so many people that we are powerless, there's nothing we can do. No, it's not the case. We, it, 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 Ted Kennedy was was one person, and you know people can get involved. There's all kinds of things average people can do. the The whole idea of you know a, a republic is of the people, and that uh, we can participate in our own self government. And Ted Kennedy and all these others are proof that we can and have made a difference. And you know the Republican Party is very busy trying to uh, uh, reject. Uh, you know, replace democracy with Christian nationalism that love authoritarians like Viktor Orban of Hungary, Brazil's Bolsonaro. Uh, And you say uh, that to preserve America's fragile democracy, it'll require a regeneration of the political imagination. Do you see examples of that bubbling up in the ranks of Democratic members of Congress, even President Biden? Yeah, I do. And and that's that's a great case for hope. Yeah. Uh, t- to your first point, I would just say, I know I actually know Reverend Jesse Jackson well. Like uh-huh. I said, I spent time with him. And, you know, he's a brilliant, courageous, charismatic yes. person. But he would not have achieved nearly what he was able to accomplish if not for his 
his volunteers, his staff, his supporters. So you're exactly right. You know, we can all make a contribution. Now, to regenerating the political imagination, I I do see very uh, promising and hopeful indicators that we're breaking out of the narrow confinement that for too long uh, dominated our public discourse. And we're beginning to see greater possibilities. I mean, you think about it, uh, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, always had the reputation as being a more conservative Democrat. Uh, But in his campaign and in his most recent State of the Union address, uh, you know, he spoke with rhetoric that resembled that of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. He did. Uh, uh, You have... As I mentioned earlier, you have members of Congress, you have sitting senators who are beginning to uh, present a persuasive argument to the voters that we need to expand our concept of the public good, that that, uh, even if we're going to have a robust free market economy, uh, we cannot privatize every aspect of our life. We need robust public institutions that serve the people. And as you were saying earlier, ensure the general welfare and stability of our society. I mean, we, we can't have a stable society if we don't have good, strong public schools and educational opportunity for everyone. We can't have a good, what one of the things that the COVID-19 pandemic should have taught us, it taught some of us, is that uh, in some ways my health is dependent upon your health and your health is dependent upon your neighbor's health. So that's why the vaccines were free. Well, why can't we do that with other uh, acts of medical care and prescriptions? And uh, we are seeing some progress in that direction in the Democratic Party. Uh, They've capped the cost of insulin. They've capped the cost of prescription drugs, and they're talking about moving forward with other measures that would expand the social welfare state into the lives of more people. And that's only going to make for a more prosperous, a healthier, and a wiser mm. public. And that means a safer and healthier democracy and society. Boy, I, I think so. And I, I'm hoping that enough more and more Americans are seeing it's in all of our interest. It's to have a steady, secure base and that the tenets of liberalism that Ted Kennedy, uh, Jesse Jackson, and so many others uh, fought for are still a good idea, that those tenets, the basis of liberalism that's uh, brought so much public good, it's still a good idea and that perhaps... uh, it's something we can learn from and, and take with us into the future. Well, if people are interested in reading more of your stuff, I assume uh, the best place to go is the Washington Monthly, but maybe there's uh, something else on that Internet thing. Yeah, uh, if people go to uh, davidmasiotra.com, uh, that's D-A-V-I-D-M-A-S-C-I-O-T-R-A.com, uh, uh, they, I post all of my articles there and uh, updates about any events where I'm speaking. Uh, so I'd appreciate And then you could reach me through email at that uh, website, too. Uh, so I appreciate a note, and uh, I hope everyone will check it out. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we're spreading the word about uh, who Ted Kennedy was and uh, what uh, might be possible in this uh, still, still democratic system that we have. Thank you so much, David. Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.